I know you're Peter's best friend. And I know you've never particularly warmed to me. No, don't, don't argue. We've never got friendly. But I just wanted to say, I hope that can change. I'm nice. I really am, apart from my terrible taste in pie. And it would be great if we could be friends. Absolutely. Absolutely. Doesn't mean we'll be able to find the video, though. I had a real search when you first called and couldn't find any trace of it, so... Well, there's one here that says Peter and Juliet's wedding. Do you think we might be on the right track? This is an embarrassment, an overdrawn rom-com gone very wrong. Time out. A bunch of predominantly white, upper-middle-class Londoners fall in love while being self-deprecating and swearing inventively. The Guardian. A patchwork of contrived naughtiness and forced pathos. New York Times. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's Love Actually. Hello and welcome to Brickcom Goes to the Movies, the podcast where we watch a British TV comedy, make the jump to the big screen and decide if it was worth it or not. And joining me is a man who's not a great speech maker, as he often finds himself jabbering absolute talkish. It's Rob Heath. And if anyone asked him to have Christmas lunch again, he'd say, thank you very much, but frankly, I'd rather have sex with Jimmy Hill. It's Skywalker. And also joining us this week is an actor who you may have seen in the Russell T. Davis show Years and Years, Waterloo Road and Coronation Street. It's Monica Segar. Hey, everybody. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. How, how's it going? It's going good. I put on my Christmas tree, like, when was it? A couple of days ago. It's starting to feel festive, but it's bloody freezing. Yeah. <laughs> So we're talking love actually today. Shall I spit you some facts before we... Ooh, yes, please. Geez. Spit knowledge. The film came out on the 14th of November in the USA in 2003. Uh, a week later in the UK, which was the 21st of November. So at the UK box office, it was number one, beating Matrix Revolutions and Finding Nemo. But in America, it was at number five in the box office behind Elf and Master and Commander had a budget of $45 million, and it made $247 million worldwide. Whoa. So that, that's beating some records that we've had set by the Inbetweeners movie, certainly for budget and for, for gross, right? Yeah, 100%. I can't remember. Was it something like 11, 11 million? Have I, I made that I, up? I think adjusted for inflation, it made $79 million or something. So, Rob, have you got some Britcom connections for us? I have, and it's it's a hard one to do with an ensemble cast because usually I just go with like kind of first, second, third credited. Um, I'm go- I'm going to go with the obvious ones and then d- d- just rattle off a few extra ones at the end. Let's start with Hugh Grant. Annoyingly, Love Actually is the film on his IMDb byline. So like when you type his name in IMDb, apparently he is most well known for this film, which I find hard to believe. Mm. that's interesting because when you have imdb pro you can write your own bio so Mm. that means him or a manager or an agent have put that first i wonder if they've done that just for the christmas period oh potentially because people are are typing love actually that's true i think there is an option there is an option where imdb will sort out what they think your most popular credit is so they'll automatically generate it so it could be that too in which case that means the people love 
love, love actually the most out of everything you guys have done. <laughs> now let's see if we're representative of the people, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> His first credit, aptly enough, was a film called Privileged in 1982 about an Oxford undergrad drama student uh, in which he's credited as Huey Grant. That's also got Mark Williams and Imogen Stubbs, that film. Um, one episode of A Very Peculiar Practice, a comedy horror movie by Ken Russell called The Lair of the White Worm with Amanda Donahoe and Peter Capaldi. Uh, into the 90s, Hugh Grant and uh, he plays Chopin in what IMDb calls a comedy biopic called Impromptu. Uh, Remains of the Day, which obviously isn't a comedy but worth mentioning because of the Emma Thompson connection. Then came Four Weddings and a Funeral, and suddenly everyone knows who Hugh Grant is, uh, which leads to Sirens, An Awfully Big Adventure, The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill and Came Down a Mountain, and then Hollywood beckoned, starting with Nine Months with Julianne Moore, which was universally panned, and the release was marred by the Divine Brown pickup incident. I bet you didn't know that Hugh Grant played the Doctor in a comic relief Doctor Who skit called The Curse of Fatal Death. He was one of several Doctors, including Rowan Atkinson, Richard E. Grant, Joanna Lumley, etc. Ah. So many rom-coms. Some better than <laughs> others. Notting Hill, Mickey Blue Eyes, Bridget Jones's Diary, and sequels about a boy, two weeks notice, into the 2010s, and the Renaissance is starting to show signs of being incoming as animated classic Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists. Have you seen that? Great no. film. Oh, I don't think so. Florence Foster Jenkins, which I've not seen but heard it's very good. Red Nose Day Actually, a reboot of uh, some of the characters from Love Actually for Comic Relief in 2017. Uh, and he did the same bollocks for Four Weddings and a Funeral in 2019, Comic Relief. <laughs> Uh, he plays himself in two episodes of W1A, which I've not seen. No, not seen it. Uh, then comes the good stuff. His funniest role, without a doubt, I think, is Phoenix Buchanan in Paddington 2, which is yes. just absolutely sublime. Uh, a very English scandal, which we've mentioned before because Blake Harrison was in it. Uh, he's in the Charlie Brooker mock docs, Death to 2020 and Death to 2021, which I really enjoyed. Uh, and he has a quick cameo in Glass Onion, uh, Martin McCutcheon is second build, which is it's kind of second build, hard to say with a, with an ensemble. But she mm. started her uh, her career in the TV drama Bluebirds, and then of uh, and of course she did one episode of The Bill, like all British actors. Monica, did you ever do The Bill? No, I didn't. When did it? Too young. Stop? You're too young. Yeah, I feel like it. When I started auditioning for stuff, it wasn't it wasn't on anymore. I think. She was most well-known, obviously, as Tiffany Raymond or Tiffany Mitchell in EastEnders before a reasonably successful pop career. A couple of number ones. I won number one, for sure. She had a very big hit, didn't she? This is my moment was number one, definitely. Yeah. Love Actually for her is what we thought might be a career revival. Hey, remember Martine McCutcheon? Uh, but it never really came back for her. There was four episodes of Moving Wallpaper, which you've mentioned before. One episode of Midsummer Murders, see the bill. <laughs> and all episodes of Echo Beach. Uh, she's in the Keith Lemon sketch show, which is a horrible foreshadowing of things to come for us, Guy. Yeah, we have to do that film at some point. And her last IMDb credit was The Bromley Boys in 2018, which should possibly be on our list. Bill Nye, again, just comedy or we'll be here all night. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's perhaps the cast member with the most Britcom credits, apart from maybe Rowan Atkinson. Uh, two episodes of the Maureen Lippmann sitcom Agony, in which she plays an agony aunt, and 
sounds like the name suggests. Yeah. Uh, one episode of Minder, he's in The Curse of the Pink Panther, which I think we've talked about before, one of the shit ones. Uh, mm. In the late 80s, comedy crime musical Matt the Knife, comedy drama film Indian Summer with Jason Fleming. In the 90s came the beginnings of the Bill Nye we're all familiar with and maybe somewhat tired of now. Uh, still crazy in 1998. One mm. episode of People Like Us, which is brilliant, but obviously very problematic now. Um, I forgot he's in Guesthouse Paradiso, which definitely is on our list. Uh, he is in six episodes of sitcom Kiss Me Kate with Caroline Quentin, Amanda Holden, and oh dear, Chris Langham again. Uh-oh. Uh, Comedy drama films Blow Dry and Lucky Break. Six episodes of the Alfreda Zane Pet reboot. All episodes of State of Play, not a comedy, but very good. Uh, then comes Love Actually. He narrated a spoof doc called Life Beyond the Box, Norman Stanley Fletcher, which is about porridge by the sounds of it. Next comes The Great Stuff, Shaun the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Enduring Love and Notes on the Scandal, neither comedy but both exceptional. Mm. Uh, the not-so-exceptional Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, then the even worse, The Boat That Rocks. Richard Curtis has got a lot to answer for with that film, and I'm not looking forward to getting to that one. I was going to say, um, we have to do that. Mm, the guinea pig movie, G-Force. What was Why? that? The guinea pig movie? Mm, G-Force. G-Force. So, so <laughs> guinea pigs. I mean, you say it like I should know what you're on about. <laughs> guinea, crime fighting guinea pigs, whatever they are. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, I'm going to have to watch that. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> uh, Wild Target, which we've mentioned before, as it's directed by Jonathan Lynn. And into the 2010s, he's in Chalet Girl, After Christmas, Best Exotic, Married Donald's Hotel, and the sequel, About Time, another Richard Curtis film I'm not looking forward to. And he's the voice of the network in The World's End, which I didn't realise. I remember that, yeah. I remember that, because, yeah, at the end when he, yeah. I didn't realise that was him. Okay. Where they give the speech about, oh, you know, we don't need you to tell us what to do. You know, we're human beings. Like, Fuck it. <laughs> and it all just lifts off. That means he's in all three of the Cornetto trilogy. Uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu. Oh, he's in that. Uh, yeah, he's in Emma. And of course, he was recently nominated for an Oscar in the Dollars Balls Living. Came, uh, let's go to Emma Thompson, and again, I'm going to keep this quick. Cambridge Footlights alumnus, obviously. One episode of Comet Strip Presents called Slags. Not see, Have you seen that one? No, I don't think... No, no I don't think I've seen Slags. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I was going to say, no. Um, <laughs> one very famous episode of The Young Ones, in which she plays Miss Money Sterling. Yeah, yeah. Two episodes of Saturday Live before she did The Tall Guy, which uh, another one written by Richard Curtis, which is on our list. Uh, she's in Peter's Friends, Much Ado About Nothing, obviously. Junior, she's in the film Primary Colours, which I really like, uh, which she basically plays Hillary Clinton. Uh, Maybe Baby with Hugh Laurie and Jolie Richardson, Love Actually, and then after that came Nanny McPhee and the sequel, Stranger Than Fiction, A Couple of Harry Potters, Last Chance Harvey, and Education, uh, an education which was inexplicably nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars that year. I liked an education. Were you a not best a fan, picture? Rob? Well, maybe not Best Picture. I can't remember what it was up against, but I thought Carrie Mulligan was very good in it. But She's also in The Awful Boat That Rocked. She's in Men in Black 3, playing Agent O. 
uh, plays P.L. Travers in Saving Mr. Banks. She's in The Legend of Barney Thompson with Robert Carlyle, Bridget Jones's Baby, one episode of Upstart Crow as Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Last Christmas, which she also wrote, How to Build a Girl, which she didn't, Cruella, What's Love Got to Do With It, not that one, and most recently, Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical, which I had a huge problem with. Not seen it. I didn't see it either. I actually didn't want to see it. I didn't want to ruin it for myself. Uh, with this being an ensemble cast, I just wanted to reel off a few British sitcom names who are also in, in this film, okay, and then a couple of their credits. Gregor Fisher, Rabsy Nesbitt, Naked Video, Martin Freeman, The Office, and Hardware. <laughs> What's the funny, a funny sitcom I can mention for Martin Freeman? I remember Hardware. It was an ITV. It was very similar to the same time as The Office, wasn't it? It was Hardware. Mm. Martin yeah. Freeman working in a hardware shop with Peter Serafinowicz. Is that, have I made yes. that? Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joanna Page, Gavin and Stacey, Chris Marshall, my family, Nina Sasanya, who's in Nathan Barley and Teachers, Andrew Lincoln, also in Teachers as a uh, connection. I When I used to do some <laughs> extra work, I was in his um, tutor group in Teachers, in the second series of Teachers. Oh, no way. He was a nice guy. From what I can remember, yeah. Can you see? Can can you see you? Mm. Are you in the shots? Right, I'll have to. Especially go in the f- first episode of series two, I'm in it. Okay. A lot. Julia Davis, Human Remains, ninety nine. Claudia Schiffer, no, just kidding. Marcus Brigstock, We Are History in the Savages. Ron Atkinson, Mr. Bean and Blackadder, amongst all the other stuff he's done. And also another funny man, although usually not intentionally. My dad, who is in a crowd scene in Love Actually. Let's finish with Richard Curtis. As writer, we've got Not the Nine O'Clock News, Blackadder, Spitting Image, Comet Relief, who's obviously co-founder of, The Tall Guy, The Robbie Coltrane Special, Little Bits of French and Saunders, Bernard and the Genie, which is on our list, Mr. Bean, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Vicar of Dibley, Bean the Movie, Notting Hill, Hooves of Fire, Bridget Jones's Diary, Edge of Reason, but not Bridget Jones's Baby, Love Actually, The Girl in the Cafe, Mr. Bean's Holiday, The Boat That Rocks, Uh, one episode of Doctor Who, War Horse, the film, Uh, About Time, SEO Trots, Mr. Bean, the animated series, Red Nose Day Actually is rearing its head again. He's credited for the story of Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Yesterday, which I'd imagine as a Beatles fan is a film you don't like guy i fucking hate yesterday (laughs) (laughs) i've not seen it through fear of thinking i would hate it yeah um 2023's genie which has just come out to terrible reviews yeah as as a director love actually was his directorial debut uh followed by the aforementioned boat that rocked uh take that music video for happy now about time and red nose day actually that's our comedy connections excellent yeah thanks rob so we decided that we'd look at the vicar of dibley as our sort of source material for this as richard curtis wrote it or rather co-wrote it and was the creator behind it And we thought we'd look at one of the christmas specials from is it 1998 i think it is 97 98 something like that uh, and i thought i'd just give us a quick rundown on the origins of the vicar of dibley so it aired on bbc one from 1994 to the year 2000 
It had three series and several specials, the most recent of which aired on the 23rd of December 2020. The show was set in a fictional Oxfordshire village of Dibley, which is assigned a female vicar following the 1993 changes in the Church of England, which permitted the ordination of women. Turns out that Don French, after this, received hate mail from a lot of male vicars. The series was created by Richard Curtis and was written for Dawn French by Curtis and Paul Mayhew Archer with contributions from Kit Hesketh Harvey. There's so many double barrels going on, isn't there? Those are the circles Richard Curtis moved in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hence, um, hence Amber Rudd being aristocracy consultant for Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is a fact I think I mention every single time that film gets mentioned. the main character vicar geraldine granger was an invention of richard curtis but he and french extensively consulted joy carroll one of the first female anglican priests and garnered many character traits and much information from her the idea for the show came from curtis's experiences at the wedding of two friends which was provided over by a female administrator he thought the concept was so right and coincidentally the church of england was allowing the ordination of women as we've said so devising the series felt like a kind of timely thing what a brilliantly apt name joy carroll is for oh like yes <laughs> didn't need geraldine granger the name was there wasn't it yeah, <laughs> yeah curtis was also living in a dibley like village at the time and knew it would be the perfect setting for the show the character of geraldine granger was initially a concern for dawn french who was worried about the character being too nice however curtis incorporated many of French's own characteristics into the vicar's personality, including her love of chocolate, her fondness for a tipple, and her occasional unbashed carnality. Joy Carroll was also influenced the character's cheeky, rude, and fun-loving traits. The opening credits of the earlier episodes were often followed by a humorous village scene, and after the closing credits, there was typically a joke told by Geraldine to her verger, Alice Tinker, played by Emma Chambers. The cast also included Gary Waldhorn as Councillor David Horton, Trevor Peacock as Jim Trott, and James Fleet as Hugo Horton amongst others the vicar dibley received multiple british comedy awards two international emmys and was a multiple british academy television awards nominee in 2004 he was placed third in bbc's poll of britain's best sitcoms the show's blend of mainstream appeal with an edge grounded it in the reality of its time and made it a critical and popular success so i guess the question is were either of you fans of the vicar dibley uh no not really never particularly i mean it it is it is funny but it was it was never really my thing it's one of those things that as i've got older i've just been able to hold my hands up and say this is something that isn't for me i recognize that it's that it's well written and well performed but i always just found it a bit too twee so i never really watched my having said that i had seen this uh christmas special a couple of times before before watching it again this week and i did laugh a few times watching it yeah uh i i think i felt the same as you to be honest what about you monica yeah i was never a big fan of the vicar of dibley um i've always really liked dawn french i think she's fantastic but yeah it never really got me back in the day and then i think this episode, the Christmas special, I think it's the first time I've sat down and watched an entire episode in its entirety. I think I'd only ever seen like bits and bobs before. And yeah, it just wasn't really something that I found funny at that point in my life. But watching the Christmas special, 
I could see, I was like, well, this is really well written. It is funny. These characters are all interesting. This concept is interesting, but it just doesn't necessarily grab me, but I can see why so many people absolutely love it, you know? Mm, yeah, I'd agree. I think for me, I remember watching this Christmas special, but excuse the pun, I didn't watch it religiously, the show. I would kind of dip in and out of it. And I enjoyed the Chris, this Christmas special, but to me, I think when you're kind of in your early teens, the idea of watching a sitcom about a vicar mm. isn't what you want to do. You want to watch something yes. that's a bit edgier and... Looking back at it, it did have more of an edge than I remembered it, but mm, I'm not sure. French and Saunders go to the movies, particularly, is just one of the one of the funniest things of the '90s. Um, and she's great, and she is just one of those just naturally funny and brilliant people. She's the best thing about that Christmas special, and that was the thing that I enjoyed about watching it was her performance. I think the right mm-hmm. the writing is really good. I can't deny that, but it does. Having watched that, I didn't think. Right, I need to dive in and watch more of Vicar of Dibley. I was like, yeah, that's fine. Can leave it where it is now. I mean, it's it's certainly the most tonally similar to the film you're about to tell us about the making of, Guy Love Actually. So yeah, as you were saying, Rob, that Richard Curtis had worked or his writing had been key to Four Weddings and a Funeral and Notting Hill. So he was working on his next project and he started writing two separate films. Both would feature in what would become Love Actually. These storylines were the ones that featured Hugh Grant and Colin Firth. Curtis said, because it takes me so long to make a film, about three years, if he wanted to go on writing romantic comedies, it would take him for the rest of his life. So partly inspired by the films of Robert Altman and Pulp Fiction, I mean, that blew me away, did that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Bloody hell. <laughs> to think that Richard Curtis has sat watching a Robert Altman film and Pulp Fiction <laughs> and going, I know what I'm going to do. <laughs> well, Pulp Fiction is my favourite film, Evs. Is it? And, yeah, and yeah. still, just about. And, you know, the idea that Love Actually, spoiler alert, isn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, that's that, that, that riled me a bit, that quote. Yeah, I, I was blown away. And I don't know if either of you have seen the Robert Altman film Nashville before, which is a favourite of mine. And it's, so. it's set over like the course of a few days at this music festival in Nashville. And you've got these country stars going and it kind of very similarly like kind of moves around quite a lot. And it's really good. I would recommend it. And to think that Richard Curtis watched that and were like, oh, yes, I'm going to do that. But at Christmas, with love, <laughs> it's just, yeah, blew my mind. So, yeah, he decided to write nine or ten of them at the same time to see if he could interwine them. And he also became interested in writing about love and what it means. The film wasn't originally set at Christmas, but due to Curtis's love of the season, it inspired him to write a Christmas film. Uh, Yeah, I like this quote from Hugh Grant where he said initially he found Curtis's script a bit psychotic, calling it Richard on steroids, which (laughs) (laughs) I think sums it up well for me. And he said, but the thing with him is what you have to remember is when he writes about love, he means it. And Hugh Grant added, and that is quite rare. He also said that the sequence in which his character is dancing through Downing Street was the most excruciating scene ever committed to celluloid. And he absolutely hated filming it. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, that's the scene that everyone seems to like as well. Well, not everyone, but I mean, it, <laughs> a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's by no means the most egregious. 
<laughs> it seems like he performed it really well because when you watch it, it does not seem that he feels like he's hating his life at that mo- moment and like cringing on the inside. He performs it very, very well. So I'm quite surprised to hear that he hated doing that. Um, I guess well done, Hugh Grant. But yes, it's cheesy as hell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have you ever had to do that, Monica? Like, a, not particularly dancing, but has it ever been a scene where you've had to to do something maybe you were particularly uncomfortable with it, like light dancing, and it actually turned out all right? Yeah, it happens quite often, you know. And in those moments, I kind of just try and be present with the character and what's going on and try and sort of turn off Monica's brain because it's Monica's brain that's cringing. But yeah, I was in a show recently where um, I had to sing uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And I was also wearing a, a puppet at the same time, but it was like a mini body attached to my head. So I was controlling these tiny hands and singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And every time I was just like, I just want to die right <laughs> now. <laughs> I just want to die. But luckily it is a very short song. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. <laughs> he got through it. Yeah, I got through it. But yeah, it does happen from time to time. And it, yeah. There's, uh, I'm hoping I'll still pick up more techniques about how to get through it. The film was rushed into production to be ready for Christmas 2003, and Curtis likened it to playing 3D chess. He would later say, the only nightmare scenario that I'd been caught in was Love Actually, which worked at the read-through, and when we finished the film and watched it edited, it was a catastrophe. So I thought I'd go into a little bit of detail on some of the storylines, because Richard Curtis said that a lot of his own life applied to kind of stories in the film. He draws a lot on his own life for some of the scenarios in the movie so the colin firth section was based on the time that uh, richard curtis is a happily married man uh, him and his family would stay at a villa in france and there was a good-looking portuguese girl who would clean the house and curtis would drive her home every day and he said that these were very embarrassing half an hour interludes because neither of them spoke each other's language so there's only so many times you can kind of do an awkward smile and nod at them and <laughs> kind of thing um the stepson and uh, well the Liam Neeson section I have to say is and has always been my least favorite of the uh, sections in Love Actually producer Duncan Kenworthy also wasn't a fan of this storyline as he felt it was too difficult to convince an adult audience of the crush of a 10 year old boy on a girl of the same age yeah that's weird Uh, Duncan Kenworthy who is also the producer of Parole Officer his name's come up when we did episode five I thought I recognised it, but yeah, the connection didn't come. Ah, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. So what? So he said what was more interesting was a man attempting to bond with his stepson. Curtis says his life has been a roller coaster of romantic emotions. From the age of four, he was in love with a girl of twelve for three years until he moved to Sweden, and then fell in love with a girl on his first day at the school in his new country, which. That just made me cringe. Mm, would, would you think he calls himself a hopeless romantic? Oh. Because it seems like he's kind of portraying himself in that way. Yeah, I think he thinks of himself like that. He seems very committed to the, the romance side of things. When you're that rich, you have to create problems for yourself as well, I guess might be another <laughs> yeah. <laughs> factor at play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. The Bill Nye section was based on Curtis's relationship with Rowan Atkinson and Duncan Kenworthy, where he said, when you realise you spend more time with people you work with rather than your family or friends. 
The Hugh Grant section was a flip of the Notting Hill storyline. So he wanted to do something where a famous man and a woman who isn't famous. And Hugh Grant said he was glad that the film didn't rest on his shoulders this time. So it was good to be part of an ensemble. So the Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman section, Curtis and Kenworthy had a lot of discussions about the storyline and it didn't always end sadly, but Kenworthy thought that it should. The scene where Emma Thompson confronts Alan Rickman wasn't part of the initial script and it was only after Rickman asked Curtis what would happen next between the characters did he write that part of the story. So it, it does seem very typical of Richard Curtis to want to put a happy ending on that section of the film, I think. Mm-hmm. And... I think it probably helped it that it didn't. At a reunion, Richard Curtis admitted that the film was bound in some moments to feel out of date. The lack of diversity makes me feel uncomfortable and a bit stupid, but the movie's flaws aren't just it aging poorly. Many of the things that people object to now were also raised by critics in 2003. Too heterosexual, too many fat jokes, too many relationships between a man and his female subordinate, too American, too cloying, too many plot lines. There was the same sex stranded of plot that was filmed, but it was edited out and Curtis did say that he regretted that he'd not included it. I'm really glad that he did address all of these criticisms because I would have just assumed he would have just ignored it all and gone, mm. I don't give a shit. It was a massive success. But yeah, what do you know? Credit to him. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah, because I feel like the the sort of lack of diversity in terms of like race, gender, sexuality, it was very typical of what was being made at that point. It is a product of its time for sure, but it is um, it's great that he addressed that because I think a lot of people wouldn't. They just mm. want to ignore it and maybe try and, you know, be more inclusive in future or not think being inclusive is important at all. So, you know, it is great that he did that. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, I think I think definitely kudos to him there. The film was nominated for three BAFTAs and two Golden Globes, with Bill Nye taking home the Best Supporting Actor trophy at the BAFTAs. So I guess the thing to um, ask next is, have we seen this film before? Yes, about well before I watched it for this, I'd seen it at least three times. I think first time I saw it was. It wouldn't have been that long after my 18th birthday on holiday in Amsterdam, hungover. I think like for it might have even been like New Year's Day or something. For that reason, because I couldn't couldn't be asked to <laughs> to do anything, um, and I was really taken in by it that first time, taken in by its tricks. And then every <laughs> sub- every subsequent viewing, I've just gone, "Oh my god, I I hate this!" Like I really. <laughs> it, 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 used to, it used to really wind me up. Like I'd, I'd be shifting uncomfortably in my seat watching it, particularly. I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about the film, but there, there's particular scenes that, uh, like Monica says, have aged really badly, but we're always uncomfortable, really. There's, there's just so much that's just way off the mark where you just think, what was Richard Curtis thinking when he wrote this? And then what was everyone else thinking, not question, not questioning it? Um, mm. So, yeah, it's, um, I think it's a shocker. What about you, Monica? Have you got a, a, a lighter opinion? Or? Um, this was my third time watching it, I think. First time I must have been about, I don't know, maybe 15 or so. And I watched it because it was like a big film. It had loads of like very famous actors in it. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. 
And then I watched it again, I think in my early 20s. And I was like, oh, I don't remember this being so shit. Um, <laughs> I was really surprised. I was like, I'm never going to watch that again, ever. <laughs> and now here you are. <laughs> now here I am. You'd seen it before, Guy, right? Yeah, I saw it at the cinema at the Odeon in Huddersfield. I went to go and watch it. And I enjoyed it on that first go. I think I got like you, Rob, like you said, you know, and, and you, Monica, I kind of got taken in by it and was like, oh, yeah, I really like, oh, this is really funny. Oh, Bill Nye's great. And, oh, you know, all the bits. The only bit I didn't like was the Liam Neeson bit with the, the mm-hmm. stepson, which I have always had a problem with, you know, what Duncan Kenworthy called about the audience believing in a 10-year-old boy being able to fall in love with a 10-year-old girl and that just be seen as, oh, yeah, that's just, of course, why wouldn't you? You know, and like Liam Neeson supporting him through it. But all the other storylines, I was, yeah, enjoyed. And then slowly as time's gone on, I've gone back and rewatched it. I've found more, more I didn't like with the film. And yeah, I think we'll get into a bit of that after this. Where are you staying? I don't actually know. I guess I'll just check into a motel like they do in the movies. <laughs> oh my God, oh my God, that is so cute. <laughs> no, 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 listen. <laughs> this may be a bit pushy because we just met you, but... Why don't you come back and sleep at our place? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, it's not too much of an inconvenience. Hell no. (sighs) But there's one problem. What? Well, we're not the richest of girls, you know, so we just have a little bed and no couch. So you'd have to share with all three of us. And on this cold, cold night, it's gonna be crowded and sweaty and stuff yeah and we can't even afford pajamas so we open with shots of people greeting each other at an airport old people are hugging young people kissing and we have a voiceover from hugh grant that tells us when he gets lonely at the state of the world he thinks of the arrival gate at heathrow airport he talks about people thinking we live in a world of hatred and greed but he disagrees love is everywhere he mentions the twin towers and that no one sent messages of hate only love. And then he says, if you look for it, love actually is all around. Worth mentioning, this is only two years after 9 11, mm-hmm. written mm. probably one year after. Incredibly crass, incredibly crass, and, you know, a sign of things to come. First of many crass <laughs> lines. <laughs> I thought that was crazy, the fact that it was so soon after 9 11. Yeah. It got it did get referenced and mm, yeah. And not in a very sensitive way. Do you know what I mean? No. Like there's a more sensitive and considerate way of referring to 9-11, and that that is not it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the one. So Bill Nye is in the recording studio singing a new version of Love Is All Around by the Trogs or Wet Wet Wet. Only it's now called Christmas Is All Around. And he keeps singing love instead of christmas and rab c nesbitt who's playing his manager corrects him after three goes he gets it right and billy says oh this is shit isn't it and his manager goes solid gold shit maestro yeah there we go there's a a first example of the film reviewing itself and also (laughs) (laughs) greg Greg fish is wearing double denim in that scene as well so it's five weeks until christmas and we have loads loads of b-roll-y tourist shots of london uh, yeah, it feels like the London Tourist Board have made these sections of the film, doesn't it? Mm. Colin Firth is late. His girlfriend has a cold and he's lying in bed and tells him not to worry. It's only around the corner and he'll make it. He tells her that he loves her, even when she's sick and looks disgusting. 
disgusting. Oh, the way he says that as well. Just and he just starts like kissing her, and I just felt yeah, what to gip because it's just awful that bit. So she kicks him out the door. We've got Liam Neeson sat at a desk looking sad. He rings Emma Thompson up because he's got no one else to talk to. Uh, but she needs to call him back. Although I am just concerned that your wife has just died, and then she kind of pulls a face, serving dual purposes of being crass and explaining plot very quickly. There's a lot of gurning. Your wife yeah. has just died. Most of the gurning comes from Andrew Lincoln, which I'm going uh, to properly lie into. <laughs> I have a lot of problems with his performance, yeah. but we will get to that. Mm-hmm. He tell, um, her kids tell her that they've been cast in a nativity as lobsters. And she's like, there's no lobsters in the nativity. And they're like, duh. Which feels like such a dad thing to write. There's a kid mm-hmm. going, duh. Yeah. yeah. Fucking hate And that. then there's that lobster one line. The kid says, oh, I'm lobster one. And she says, oh, there was more than one lobster at the birth of Christ. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yeah, that's what she goes, yeah, duh. Yeah. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we've got Chris Marshall delivering sandwiches being creepy. Try my lovely nuts, he says to one woman. And then he goes over to a character we'll later know as Maya, and he goes, morning, my future wife. And then she yeah. just sighs and walks off, and he looks sad. Martin Freeman and Joanna Page are on a film set and they're kind of having simulated sex with their clothes on and they introduce themselves and seem to get on. I felt out of everyone we've seen so far, these two felt the most natural people in probably the most unnatural situation. Yes. And I think that's why I think, I feel like those scenes work really well because it's such an unnatural situation. And I feel like, it's been directed very well. They're like, make it seem like you're sat next to each other on the bench at a park, you know, like yeah. make it as small and simple as possible. And it lends so well to the concept of what's happening. Mm. Stick to beloved sitcom actors in those roles as well. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's it. 100%. So Andrew Lincoln and Chiwetel Ejiofor are at the, a wedding as best man and groom Chiwetel checks that there's going to be no surprises unlike the stag do with the Brazilian prostitutes which was a mistake and it would have been much better if they'd not turned out to be men not, not only <sighs> is that rubbish but it's it's so late it's so labored the quick let's explain let's try and explain who these people are really quickly while mm-hmm. uh is about to walk up the aisle and it's just it's just so obvious. Yeah. Don't explain who they are because now I don't want to know any more about them. No, they just sound <laughs> awful. And it, it, you could do a much better joke than that without having to go into the transphobia stuff. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Exactly. It's so unnecessary. I it's feel just, so sorry for Chiwetel for He is far too good an actor to have mm-hmm. that shit a role. I yeah. Think, yeah, absolutely. 100%. He's great. And then you think about the work he's done since, and mm-hmm. it's just like, ugh. Oh. Yeah, and I hate the delivery of this bit. It's shit dialogue, and it's delivered shitly as well. And Andrew Lincoln, then he picks up a camcorder. But this is just, a, oh, I just hated that. So we have Kieran Knightley who enters, who I have to say I'm a bit of a Kieran Knightley fan. I've had a crush on Kieran Knightley since Bend It Like Beckham. So I'm going to be unapologetic about that. I think she's great. I don't think she's been utilised very well in this film, unfortunately, because she is a fantastic actor. Mm. Um and yeah it just felt like i wasn't seeing the best of her you know no i felt like she was just in this film because of maybe like the other films that she'd done prior to this and it was just let's get the girl from bendit like beckham in had there been a 
there'd been a uh, Pirates of the Caribbean at this point as well, right? I think. Yeah, I think a little bit earlier than this, so maybe in the mm. summer or something. So you you had that as well. Mm. So obviously, think let's get Kira Knightley in for a few days filming as well because she was probably hot property as well. And I think she, along with Chiwetel Ejiofor, are a lot better than what they're given in this film. Yes. Yeah, so Keira Knightley enters as the bride with a beaming smile, and then we cut to the new Prime Minister, Hugh Grant, arriving at number 10. He's introduced to his household staff. He meets Terence, who's in charge. Oh, I had an uncle called Terence. Hated him. Think he was a pervert, but I'm pleased to meet you. Like, the people talk to people like this when you meet <laughs> new people for the first time. Like surely, surely the prime minister will have the social skills to understand that that is an inappropriate thing to say to someone when you're meeting them for the first time. <laughs> or is he foreshadowing yeah. uh, Boris Johnson? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. The, the, this film seems to set up that Hugh Grant is like the perfect prime minister, doesn't it? Of like the prime minister we we deserve. Which it's, yeah, it's well, supposed to be. Is the point in that line supposed to say? this guy is always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And yet he's prime minister. Yeah. Again, heavy handed and crass. I think he's trying to, yeah, I think he's trying to say he's one of us. He's not like these other politicians, you know, he's what, he's a man of the people, but not Boris Johnson. So he meets Pat, the housekeeper and Martine McCutcheon, who's new as well, but she doesn't have a job role. Yeah. Her her role is Martine McCutcheon. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so then she calls him by his first name and then says, Sh- oh, shit, and then says it again, mortified that she's swearing and calling him by his name, and Hugh laughs. And then um, he says, oh, you know, you could have said fuck, and then we'd both be in trouble. And she says that she has an awful premonition that she was going to fuck up on her first day. Hugh walks off bemused and intrigued by Martine. I've written, isn't Martine lovely with her lovely swearing? This is yes. this is so four weddings, though, isn't it? The... Um early doors getting as many uh, f-bombs in as he can yeah there's a bit later where she swears which was one of the few times i laughed but i'll let you know which one that is when it I comes i feel up. like i know which one that is because i think i laughed at the same one. Oh, let's see let's, <laughs> let's come back see. to that put a pin in it and let's oh, yeah. see <laughs> so hugh goes into his office realizes he has a crush on martine and how inconvenient it is chowatel and kira get married Another scene I absolutely fucking hate as a Beatles fan. Mm-hmm. I, I'm nowhere near as big a Beatles fan as you are, Guy. I wouldn't even probably class myself as a Beatles fan, but I fucking, I really hate this. Mm-hmm. I think as a fan of music, you can hate this, let alone a Beatles fan. Just the contrived, <laughs> the contrived people. Oh, hadn't anyone noticed? Oh, who the fuck are those people those my, in my congregation? I don't know them. And why are they carrying massive cases for brass instruments <laughs> yeah and guitars like yeah. where's he plugged his amp in <laughs> I, andrew lincoln high fives the fucking priest i, I, f- I fucking hated that himself. as well i'll I tell you who i really feel sorry for in this whole segment the guy who's singing is a british r&b star is probably the wrong word a guy called lyndon david hall who had a kind of minor hit with a song called sexy cinderella around that time Mm-hmm. he's a really good singer with a really good voice and he was kind of there was a kind of small uk r&b scene around that time with people like him beverly knight and terry walker and people like that and he he was a really good talent and all he'll ever really be known for is that scene in that film which is shit yeah and we've got colin firth and laura linney who are in the audience 
I put this is really cringe. And why is Laura Linney dressed like she's going to a Christmas market? She's got very like pumpkin spice latte vibes with like a big woolly hat on and a big coat. And it don't look like they're going to a wedding. It just feels like let's just plonk these two characters there to make that connection between everyone, but not actually yeah. give them a connection. Her character yeah. is Scarf. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, Colin Firth comes home to find his brother at his house and wants to borrow some CDs. And then we have another line that I absolutely hated where Colin's girlfriend shouts, hurry up, big boy. I'm naked and I want you at least twice before Colin Firth gets home. There's also, also a terrible clunky exposition line where he says, uh, Colin Firth says to what we now understand to be his brother, Mm-hmm. Do you think we should do something good for mum? Because we have been bad sons this year. Yeah. Nobody talks to their brother like that, mate. Mm-mm. No, no, exactly. It's the way that the, the brother goes, huh, yeah, I guess. I mean, sounds, sounds kind of boring, but I guess we could. It's like, who are these people hanging out with your parents yeah. to go for a family meal? Is just boring. <laughs> <laughs> and weirdly, I feel like, you know, maybe it's jumping ahead at the end where Colin Firth does go home for Christmas and decides to leave to go pursue finding the Portuguese girl from France. Um, His family are all there to greet him, but there's no tension about what's happened. Mm. And the brother is not present. And there's like none of that, none of those stakes are carried through, which I thought was weird. He's in the background. So I looked at this. So the brother is in the background of the scene. No way. Yeah. Because I was like, he's not going to be there. And he was there. And I also hate that scene where the kids, for no reason, go, I hate Uncle Jamie. Yeah. Because we are jumping everybody. He goes, oh, yeah, sorry, I, I have to go. And they just go, well, I hate Uncle Jamie. Fuck off. You're better, better off getting an unfeasible ticket to Marseille on Christmas Eve, mate. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. Put <laughs> a pin in it. <laughs> Yeah, so at the wedding, Chris Marshall is handing out hors d'oeuvres where he spots Julia Davis, another uh, actor being criminally underused in a role, Mm -hmm. and he tries to chat her up by slagging off the food. Chris Marshall finds his mate in the back and tells him the reason he can't find love is because English girls are all stuck up, and he gets on better with girls who are cooler, like American girls. So he's going to America. He'll get a girlfriend there instantly. And his mate tells him it's crap. And he's right. It is crap. I was just going to say, does the friend, is it this point where the friend says, the reason you can't find a girlfriend is because you're a dickhead? Was, is that in this bit? That yeah, was one of the most be. like truthful lines in the entire film. I yeah. Think. He <laughs> says you're a lonely, ugly asshole. Correct on all fronts. <laughs> What's weird about this guy, this character, I forget, I think the character's name is Tony. You mm. see him in that scene. That scene ends with a, a close-up of him. And the next scene starts with a shot of him in a different location. It's just really bizarrely edited. Because it yeah. goes straight into the scene with Martin Freeman and Joanna Page, mm. with him giving them directions. So, okay, yeah, he's supposed to be like a a second AD or whatever. Mm. But it it does those two things don't join together very well it's, at all. The, some, of not, the, some of the editing in this film is weird, to say the least. 
Yeah, no, definitely. I think you can see what Richard Curtis was talking about with like the difficulty of editing it. Cause it's like, it's like, it isn't like the jump cuts been planned. It's just like, they've gone, oh shit, we've got to put something in. <laughs> this is all we've got. Well, I think you've just got to say, and uh, and this is probably more of a point for the end, but you've just got to be ruthless and say, I've got to get rid of at least two of these storylines. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. that is one of them. That's the first one I'd get rid of is the, is the American guy, the, the guy going to America. Mm. he's not likable it's 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 crap um weirdly that's the bit that i liked as an 18 year old maybe because it made me want to try and do the same thing i don't know but yeah maybe that appeals to sort of boys in the mid to late teens or something well that's obviously what it was for yeah exactly aspirational for teenage boys so yeah, um, like you said, we have the, the this scene between Joanna Page and Martin Freeman, and then Liam Neeson does the eulogy at his wife's funeral and plays Bye Bye Baby by the Bay City Rollers. We then transition into the same song playing at Kira and Chiwetel's wedding. He plants the first mention of Claudia Schiffer at this point as well, doesn't he? Yeah. Who's going to get mentioned yeah. at least one or two more times before yeah. the big reveal that's it exactly a lot of foreshadowing going on andrew lincoln is like carl boehm in peeping tom constantly with his camcorder pointing it at kieran knightley <laughs> the absolute creep and doing bizarre gurney out of out of place over the top face acting yeah i must be doing am i being harsh here monica i must be doing stuff with my <laughs> face when i'm not doing dialogue I feel like he may have been given a director's note, which is to play, sort of show more about how uncomfortable your character is, that, you know, he's in love with his best mate's now wife. He's at their wedding. It's really difficult. It's a huge emotional thing that he has to go through. Show a little bit of, show that discomfort in his face, like the anger, the you know, the passion. And those are the faces that came out. I, that's what I think probably happened, um, which is maybe, I don't know, a step too far. I mean, it needed to be a little bit more subtle. But then again, the whole film's kind of like that. Like, it could have all done with being a bit more subtle. Because mm, I, I, he seems to, I don't know what, because I can't remember what he was like in Teachers, and I don't know how it was acting with mm, him. Quite a Rob. lot like that. I do. He he did a lot of those faces in in teachers as well. Mm. I don't really remember it much from at the time, but from like rewatching old episodes. But it is. But it's really good. And and the thing about teachers is it's meant to be a little bit bizarre and surreal. Like there are like genuine surreal moments in it. Yeah. Mm. And so it's meant to all be a little bit silly and cartoonish. I don't, I don't know about it. Like I said, like the the whole tone of this film is so all over the place. It's, mm. it's weird. I was just going to say, I've never seen The Walking Dead, but a lot of people only know Andrew Lincoln from The Walking Dead. Um, is that what his performance style is like in that? Have either of you seen it? No, it's very different in The Walking Dead. Okay. And, it, it, and that's the sort of thing he's suited to much more, I think. Okay. Something, something that calls for a bit more kind of over the top, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I've not seen it, but we have... Because he's acting sound this, he's very kind of posy, like, I'm going to talk like this. And it feels very strange to me. I don't know if, if you guys got the same kind of thing from it. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And you, you, it's, you can't stop looking at it, and it's it's really distracting. 
Yeah, 100%. Yeah, Laura Linney sits next to him and asks if he's in love with the groom, and he says no many times, uh, absolutely not. And then Laura goes, so that's a no, and then he changes the subject. It's like, how bad is this DJ? And she's like, all hinges on the next song. DJ is played by stand-up comedian Junior Simpson, who at the time was in a lot of uh, panel shows. I was going to say, I remember him on Nevermind the Buzzcocks being very funny. Yeah, and then Laura says it all hinges on the next song, uh, which is Puppy Love by Donnie and Marie Osmond. So yeah, the DJ, played by Junior Simpson, has a Motorhead t-shirt on. And yeah, it doesn't look like the sort of guy who's going to be playing Puppy Love, but I don't know. He's he's funny, so he kind of does a a funny little bit there, doesn't he? That might be... His, the face he pulls when listening to Puppy Love might be the funniest thing in the entire film, and that is not saying much. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, what, four seconds of a two-hour, 15-minute film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no more last for Rob after this in the first 20 minutes. <laughs> well, yeah, 20 minutes have gone, and we're still introducing characters. Oh, we've got yes. another one to introduce. We've got Alan Rickman. So in his office, a lady that Chris Marshall declared the love of his life, this is Mia, and he asks if she's setting in all right, and then he spots Laura Linney and invites her into his office, tells her to take a seat and switch her phone off. And then he asks her, how long have you been working here? And she's like, two years, seven months, three days and two hours. And how long have you had a crush on Carl, the chief designer? (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, two years, seven months, three days, and an hour and 30 minutes? And it goes, everybody knows about your crush, (laughs) Carl. (laughs) (laughs) He's making 20%. Yeah, he is. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote, what a cool boss Alan Rickman is, suggesting that she ask out her crush. Mm. Yeah. I don't think that that would wash with HR now. No, definitely not. Definitely I'm doing fucking not. business, old man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's totally bizarre, isn't it? Because he's basically going, yeah, why don't you go and shag a co-worker? Yeah. It's Christmas. Laura leaves, looks pained, and then a phone rings. Bill Nye is a guest on Marcus Brigstock's radio show, Radio Watford. And he tells Marcus that Christmas is for people with someone in their lives, but that's not him. He's taken it for granted when he was younger. Now he's wrinkled and alone. Marcus is happy that someone's given him an honest answer for once. And Bill asks him, ask me anything you want and I'll tell you the truth. Best shag you've ever had? Britney Spears. Only kidding. <laughs> she was rubbish. That joke's age like milk, hasn't it? Given everything we know about Britney Spears. Mm-hmm. Yes. Christ. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not great looking back on that gag as well because she'd be still quite young then, I think. And he looks very fucking old. Yes. Hugh Grant needs to deal with the US president's visit. They don't want to be bullied like the last government and they need to take a firm stand, his ministers tell him. One of them's very, very Yorkshire. We need to take a firm stand, Prime Minister. That is that is Richard Hawley from Prime Suspects. Oh, okay. Playing that part, yeah. Thought I recognised him. Thought I never recognised him. My first job was Prime Suspect 3. I was an extra in that. Well, yeah. Yeah, I was like, what, two and a half, three years old? Brilliant. Oh, look at that. Which one was three? Three? Oh, I can't remember what happens. I'm in the first like five or ten minutes and I don't think I've ever watched it past that. 
Hugh decides that it's a no on taking a stand. Then he says, who do you need to screw to get a cup of tea and a chocolate biscuit round here? And uh, it's Martine McCutcheon, it turns out, because she brings the trolley in with the tea and Bickies. Alan Rittman and Maya are planning the Christmas party. And he hopes that she hasn't got some six-foot muscly boyfriend that she'll be bringing. And then she goes, no, I'll just be hanging around the mistletoe, hoping to be kissed. And he's, he's got the brass neck to say, avoid Kevin, he gets a bit handsy. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Jesus. Yeah, you're the one telling yeah. people you yeah. work with to go and yeah. shag each other. Mm-hmm. Awful, awful man. <laughs> Liam Neeson moans to Emma Thompson that his stepson spends all his time in his room. She says that he should be grateful. Liam is worried that he's injecting heroin into his eyeballs. At 11, Emma says, Liam starts to cry, and Emma tells him to get a grip, because people hate sissies. I don't know what their relationship's meant to be. And also, they're, they're eating... This is tell, tells you everything you need to know about these people, that they're eating straight from a box of Waitrose Frosted Flakes. <laughs> oh, they didn't notice that. Very expensive looking kitchen. This bit really bugged me, to be honest, because it felt like it felt like it was perpetuating that men shouldn't cry um, idea. And literally, his wife has just died of what seems to be a you know a terminal illness of some kind. Like he can cry as much as he fucking wants. Yeah. Don't tell him not to cry if he needs to cry. Let it out, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, well, she, yeah, and then she goes on and says, well, no one will want to shag him if he cries all the time. His wife is just, he's not looking to shag someone, surely. I know, it's been a, like a week <laughs> since his wife died. Yeah, he talks to the kid, Sam. And they sit along the embankment, and it turns out that the kid is in love. Liam asks, aren't you a bit young to be in love? No, it apparently he's not. Laura Linney is doing her makeup and watching Carl from across the office. They say goodnight, and her phone rings again, and she looks pained. Colin Firth is a, a filler in France, writing another novel. Hugh Grant wants to get to know Martine and know better, and he says, it seems elitist and wrong that, you know, I don't know you. And she lives in Wandsworth, the dodgy end. Is, is is there a dodgy ending in Wandsworth, Rob? No such thing. Not anymore, anyway. No, I, d- I did wonder. And certainly the street that they go down. is beautiful. <laughs> yes. Street. Anything but dodgy. I thought that. And there's nothing dodgy about it either. There's no burnt out cars. I mean, that's a bit cliched, but you know what I mean. Maybe in the circles Richard Curtis moves in. But, uh, yeah. She's just split up with her boyfriend. He said that she was getting fat. And no one is going to fancy a girl with, with thighs the size of big tree trunks. And I put, so I went to think that Martin McCutcheon is fat then. Yeah, and it gets mentioned a few times. And it does. Again, like, well, we've said we're kind of glad that Richard Curtis recognised all of this. But mm. he he seems to have a real obsession with it because it's not just that character either, is it? There's fat jokes about Gregor Fisher as well. And yeah. Um, Bill Nye calls him chubs in one scene, doesn't yeah, he? And yeah, things exactly. like that. Yeah. Mm. And then put that aside with the character of Mia. They show her in her underwear a lot, and she's a very slim build. So, like, when you put the two things together, you know, consistent fat jokes, and then Mia, who isn't a fully rounded character either, you know, um, always in her underwear, very slim frame. It it sends a message, doesn't it? And it's it's not a good message. Yeah, there's there's two scenes in particular where she's just in her underwear, just lounging around on her yeah. bed. 
you know, yeah. for, for, no, for good no reason, reason. really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sam tells Liam Neeson that he's in love with this girl who doesn't know exists. And he's like, she's the coolest girl in school who everyone worships because she's heaven. The so he children. Does, does he say heaven? I yeah. thought he said hip. And I wrote, which child, even in 2003, would say hip? But he says heaven, does he? He says heaven, which I think which child would say a girl is heaven. I thought he said because she's Heather. As in her name is Heather. Like like she's Heather, the girl that everybody loves. That's better. Monica, you've done a punch up on this script. (laughs) Well, but given all three of us thought he said something different, that line and its Mm -hmm. delivery had the desired effect, didn't it? Clear as fucking mud. <laughs> and it's such a shame because I love that actor. I can't remember his name, but he was in The Queen's Gambit he's brilliant a couple of years Queen's ago. Gambit. He's absolutely yeah. brilliant. He's really good. I hated him in this film, but he's, he's turned out <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, Liam Neeson tells him that he's fucked, basically. Um, Bill Nye is on a TV show with Anton Deck, slacking off Blue, the boy band. That's a, that's a 2003 reference, isn't it? Blue. Yeah. It's three weeks now until Christmas. At Andrew Lincoln's gallery, he tells some girls off for laughing at a picture of naked men. Chiwetel is on the phone to him and says that Kira's got a favour to ask, and he tells him to be nice to her and be friendly. Turns out the wedding video is crap. It's come out all blue and wobbly, says Kira. Uh, And he was filming a lot on a day, so um, can she have a look at his tape? And he's not sure if he's still got it. So he doesn't want to get her hopes up, and she looks annoyed. Alan Rittman checks on the progress of the Christmas party. Mia's found a venue at an art gallery, which is full of dark corners for doing dark deeds. And then she spreads her legs a little and Alan looks awkward. Left with no choice but to relent. He's got to shag her. (laughs) (laughs) He he has to do it (laughs) now. She's opened her legs and said something, you know, about dark corners. So it's not, it's not his fault. And at this point, did you both realise that he was married? Because I didn't remember he was married. And I don't know if, they, if they've if they made it clear that he's already married at this point. Because they've introduced Emma Thompson, they've introduced him, but they've introduced them separately. That's true. At this point. So at this point, I thought he was a single man. But her boss, but the single man. Doesn't he do some kind of reveal shot? To, to reveal Maybe. that they are married. That's I think there is, yeah. Maybe does. Yeah. Colin Firth is introduced to the girls cleaning his house, who's called Aurelia. She's Portuguese and doesn't speak English. He agrees to drive her home after she's finished work, and we have this difficult scene in the car where they can't talk to each other, and he just sings Silence is Golden by the Tremolos. She laughs to herself. I hate that third character, the woman. I'm guessing it's like the woman who is her boss, the French woman who is her boss, who's just basically there to explain to the audience why all his, why he's so shit at talking to her, which doesn't need, she doesn't, that character doesn't need to be there. So, Mm-mm. oh, you can't, you can't reference Eusebio. She'll have no, she's too young to understand who that is. And all this f- fucking bollocks. Yeah. It's like, A, leave him alone. And B, why, there's no point in you even being there. Yeah. Yeah, a slimy Billy Bob Thornton shows up playing the US president. He's very creepy and awful. I, I, yeah, I never quite believe it, though. I never quite believe that Billy Bob Thornton is, is the American president. I don't know how you guys felt about that. It just no. feels 
bad casting to me. No, definitely not. Although we we mentioned primary colours earlier on, and he plays. I think is he like one of the kind of like spin doctors or something for John Travolta's Bill Clinton character. I think he's meant to be like James Carvel or someone like that. He yeah. and he's he's brilliant in that kind of a role, and he's always he's he's brilliant being sleazy. But it just mm. again like this yeah. this character is just. Uh, is is this Richard Curtis kind of really pathetically having a pop at Bush? I, I, I don't know what this is. It's meant to be like a cross between Bush and Clinton. I think is is yeah. this character. Also, again, there's there's more bad editing in this scene where he kind of he welcomes him in. They start walking towards the camera down one corridor and then it jump cuts in the same size shot with the two of them walking up some stairs. It's it's bizarre. Mm. Bad, yeah, badly, badly edited. They bump into Natalie on the stairs, and he's like, "That's a pretty little son of a bitch right there." What annoys me most about this is that, like they're setting him up as a likable politician, or finally a nice politician. But actually, if it wasn't for like it, he, there'd be no pushback on any of his policies if he hadn't have um, said that about Martin McCutcheon. Like he'd have just gone mm. gone along with <laughs> gone along with the yes. shit policy. Mm. Because he doesn't call it, call the president out and go, actually, come on, don't talk to her like that. Exactly. Yeah. He goes along with it. Yeah, exactly. So he's kind of complicit. I, the line's awful, but it's, he, I guess he does set him up as a bad person, but you kind of need Hugh Grant to be a bit like, oh, wait a minute. And he just makes him look a bit cowardly. Yeah. And doesn't he say something? Yes, she's great at her job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at her job. At her job. Uh, yeah, and then he's sat by the fireplace and he goes off to get something and leaves the president there and then Martin walks in he, get, he grabs a file and then walks back in and there's sort of something going on but you're not quite sure where he's sort of like leaning over and then she looks like absolutely mortified but you never quite know what's going on and then we have the the bit in the press conference where B- Billy Bob Thornton's saying that he's happy that they've got what they wanted and then Hugh Grant basically stands up to the president and says that the special relationship involves the president taking everything that he wants whilst he looks at Martine and then not giving Britain anything that they want. Basically. But like I say, wouldn't have said any of that, wouldn't have taken any of that stand had he not um, said, had he not been inappropriate to the girl he fancies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. That's it. And then... Uh, and I read that as like the president had like assaulted her, harassed her. Mm-hmm. That's what it kind of looked like to me, but then... Later on, I don't know, we'll get there. It doesn't appear that way in the way that um, Martine McCutcheon talks about it, but maybe it is just that that's how it appeared to her in the moment. doesn't make it right, but, you know, that's how she's interpreted it to, I don't know, maybe cope with what happened. Emma Thompson tries to ring Hugh Grant, who it turns out is her brother, but he's too busy to speak to her when the phone goes down. She asks him if he's lost his mind. And Anina says, I need to speak to the Chancellor of the Exchequer and puts the phone down. So then Emma wants Alan Rittman, who is her husband, and saying it puts your life into perspective when your brother is a prime minister. And then she's making paper mache lobsters heads for her kids. And Alan Rittman moans about having to listen to Joni Mitchell. So this sets that up. And then she says that she's been on this love, you know, she's been on a journey with uh, Joni Mitchell for her whole life. And true love lasts a lifetime. And then they're wrapping up her daughter, a presents for her daughter's friend, which which Barbie doll should they give her? The one that looks like a transvestite or the one that looks like a dominatrix? Yeah. And then we have Hugh Grant dancing around number 10 Downing Street to 
Jump by the Pointer Sisters. The, the scene that he hated. Uh, introduced yes. by Joe Wiley on Radio 1 there, uh, calling Jump by the Pointer Sisters a golden oldie for a golden oldie. And I thought that's a bit rich, Joe Wiley calling Hugh Grant old, isn't it? Must be the same age, aren't yeah, they? I have thought so. <laughs> <laughs> it's now two weeks until Christmas. Colin Firth is sat outside a lovely-looking stretch of water. Aurelia brings him a cup of tea. She lifts the, an old one up, and all the papers that he's just typed all fly off and go into the water. So then we have this scene where she gets undressed, and we have these sort of slow-mo shots going up and down her body, and then he sees her tramp stamp tattoo um, on the small <laughs> of her back, and uh, he's, he kind of like looks at it, and the camera kind of goes in on his face as he's checking out this tattoo and uh yeah he's, he's has his breath taken away <laughs> fucking hell <laughs> <laughs> and he goes I, I really should make copies yes of course you should if you're a fucking novelist mate <laughs> of course you should you just print yeah. it all out so then she jumps into the water and then he goes oh well i, I need to do the same because uh, you know if i don't she'll think i'm a proper spaz which I'm like, it's 2003, mate. You can't be playing yeah. spaz. <laughs> Even in 2003, that wasn't all right. No, it wasn't. Um, I've just written, oh, Colin, you're better than this. Yeah, and he is. Mm. Yeah. Like he quite is. a few people most in this of, Most of them are. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I agree. So back inside, Colin's fully dressed, but she's just got a towel wrapped round her while they have a hot drink <laughs> and try to describe... But what his book's about in some sort of charades game that they play, and then he tells her that it's a it's it's my favorite time of day driving you home, and she says in Portuguese, "It's the worst part of my day leaving you." Andrew Lincoln is stood up eating cereal and watching Bill Nye sing his shit Christmas song. The doorbell goes, and it's Kira Knightley. She offers him some banoffee pie and wants to check out the wedding video. He says he's busy, but she invites herself in anyway. She calls the banoffee pie shit. Yeah. Banoffee pie is one of the, the high caliber pie flavors you yeah. can have. It's good pie. If she should slag herself off for anything, it's the hat she's wearing, which makes her look like she's auditioning to be in Bewitched or something. <laughs> the, the girl band, not the sitcom. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's very 2003 fashions of this. But yeah, she, yeah, she goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, because she tries to like defend herself to Andrew Lincoln by going, you know, I'm really nice and I know you're not warm to me and I hope, hope this can change, you know, because I am nice apart from my terrible taste in pie. It's like, what's wrong with a banoffee? Come on, Kira, you're better than mm. this. I really wanted to know what happened to the pie at the end of this scene. Mm, I yeah. wanted to know what, what's the pie's journey? Who ate the pie? But it, it just says it all about how, li how little he gives a shit about this character that that's literally all he can think to say about her. That she, mm. she's picked a pie that you might not like yeah and she also offers him a munchie bar as well which was unexpected um <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's another character point <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who grabs a munchie you know what i mean grab a twirl or a crunchy but a munchie says a lot about kira's character does that <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so she finds a tape because he goes, oh, you know, I, I've had a real search for it and, uh, you know, might have taped over it or something. And then she's like, oh, is this it? Peter and Juliet's wedding video. And, uh, yeah, sticks it on. And then she's, like, really happy. Going, oh, yes, yeah, it's really good. And then it's all just, like, extreme close-ups of her face. Oh, and then she's like, with me. Oh, I love that. Well, it's the bit where she goes, you've stayed rather close, haven't you? Like <laughs> 
I look quite pretty. Yeah. It's Kira Knightley. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hate, yeah, again, I hate that bit for Kira. Yeah, they all they're now iconic. They're all of me. Um yeah, she's shocked and she's like, but you never talk to me. You don't like me. And he just makes excuses and goes, Oh yeah, it's a self-preservation thing. And then just walk, I fucking hate that line. And then he just walks out and leaves this girl in his flat eating her pie. It it doesn't mean anything. Walks out to the strains of Dido, which is Dido is the perfect artist for this film. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Blandorama. <laughs> Music yeah. for people who don't like music. 100%. They could have just filled the whole film with Dido mm. tracks, couldn't they, really? And he seems to, also, he seems to, when he comes out of his flat, it seems that he lives in Oxo Tower, which um, would be nice and expensive for him. <laughs> He's doing well then. Yeah. Hugh Grant calls in his PA and asks about Martine, and she rep- responds, the chubby girl. And he's like, would we call her chubby? And she goes, I think there's a pretty sizable ass there, sir. Huge thighs. This is a co-worker you're talking about. Yeah. The female characters in this film defined by their size, what kind of pie they eat or buy, <laughs> and um, whether they have a brother who hits them. Oh, yeah. Those, that's it. Yeah, that's all yeah. they've got. Uh, yeah, so then Hugh asks uh, for Martine to be moved to another department. So not only does she get possibly assaulted by the American president, she then gets moved to another department. Great day for Martine McCutcheon's character. Liam Neeson is sad looking at a picture of his dead wife. Sam turns up and tells him it's bad news today. Joanna, the girl he's in love with, is going back to America. So him and Liam watch Titanic to cheer themselves up. I wrote here, love actually makes Titanic look like Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> it does, to be fair. Or, or what's the Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane of rom-coms? When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. Or, you know, or a good rom-com. Yeah, Colin Firth is packing up to go home, and Aurelia is helping him with his luggage, which includes big sticks of garlic and wine. So. Yeah, because well, he's in France. Yeah. Yeah, and then he drops her off. She kisses him. They both don't know what to do next, and she walks off wearing her red coat, and he gets into his car and has a car accident. Weird location scouting for that scene. It looks like they're but it looks like they're by a refugee camp or something. Yeah. It's, it's it's really weird, isn't it? Yeah. I was trying to figure out like where he was dropping her off. Like, was he dropping her off home? Was it at a, it it almost looked like it could be an airport mm. at one point? Was he going? It was all quite mm. confusing as to where they were and why they were separating from each other and saying goodbye. I thought he was getting the ferry at one because he was on about leaving. So when he dropped her off, I thought, oh, is he getting the ferry there? But he, they're in Marseille, though, aren't they? That's the, yeah, which yeah. I only realised when, when he goes to the airport later mm. on. Mm. Sam is watching a Bill Nye music video in a shop window and realises that if he's going to win Joanna's heart, he has to become a rock star. So he tells Liam Neeson the master plan. There's a big concert at the end of term. Joanna is a singer in the school band. And if he was in the band and played absolutely superbly, he might stand a chance and she might fall in love with him. Liam thinks it's a brilliant idea, but one small hiccup, Sam can't play a musical instrument. And we now have a montage sequence of Sam learning to play the drums. Remember, this is two weeks until Christmas and he hasn't learned the drums yet or joined the school band. We are, what, we are almost exactly halfway through at this point. We're only halfway, halfway. through. And it feels like it's wrapping up. And it, 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 
it's like the third Lord of the Rings for how many fucking endings it has. This film, it's just just constantly. It's like it's wrapping up for the entire last hour. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's mm-hmm. so it's way long. too long. It's way mm. too long. Mm-hmm. Well, like you said, you could cut a couple of these storylines out because mm. you don't need them. Went out the Christmas party at this art gallery where Andrew Lincoln works. Laura Linney is making eyes at Carl, not that he notices. Emma Thompson goes off to do the duty of schmoozing all the people's families and talking to them. Rickman calls her a saint. And then Maya shows up in a red dress wearing devil's horns. Because that isn't on the nose at all, is it? <laughs> it's and a Christmas she- party. Yeah. It's not Halloween. No, exactly. But she's a devil woman. We've had uh, Sugar Babes in the lead up to this bit as well, haven't we? That that song was massive off the soundtrack of this. Too Lost in You. And then when they're on the dance floor, they're dancing to Like I Love You by Justin Timberlake, which is a classic pop song of the mid-noughties. The neat sum, and I stress some, of the needle drops are saving this film from completely sucking me into oblivion <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a bit all over the the music choices are a bit all over the place sorry also for such a sexy man carl has really crap glasses so my shows up and then she's like any chance of a dance with the boss and he's like yeah sure and then and he compliments her on looking very pretty and she's like it's for you it's all for you and emma thompson watches this happen yeah, he's been a bit bloody obvious about it. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. give a shit. Does he not realise, or does he just not fucking care? Both, both. Yeah. Bill Nye goes on Parkinson, talks about his shit song. <laughs> Emma Thompson and Laura Linney are watching Alan and Maya dancing uh, because Laura says that it's part of his job to dance with everyone. Oh, this is the Justin Timberlake bit. Sorry, I got a bit ahead of myself. Ah, uh, yeah, because then it changes into Nora Jones. Laura Linney and Carl uh, go to dance and that's when we they, they start dancing and it becomes the Nora Jones track and then they start slow dancing. They basically go back to her place. They're getting getting it on in the bedroom and then um, her phone rings and she answered it and she's like, yeah, I'm not doing anything. I'm not busy. And he looks a bit shocked. And then she puts her phone down and I think she's got a bra off by this point. I think she's got her boobs out. And then it rings again, and then she starts talking to the person on the other side of the phone, and yeah, that's revealed to be her brother who's in some sort of institution and obviously not well. And it kind of kills the mood, and then Carl just sits on the edge of the bed looking put out. This this is this storyline with her and her brother. Again, it's one of the ones that's kind of held up as being a bit better than the rest. But I, I don't, I, I think this is one of the worst. I think it's, mm. it's so poorly handled and it's so crowbarred in and it's, and it, and it's just, it, it's, it's heavy handed. And I don't know what the fuck, the point that Richard Curtis is trying to make with this is, but it's, 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 it's weird. It's weird and it doesn't work and it, it should be, you know, it, it, if this film was just about her and Carl and her brother, then obviously you could explore that a bit more. But it, it mm. doesn't. It doesn't work for this kind of film. It's, no, it's really weird when juxtaposed with everything else. What I said at the beginning that I feel like they don't show an, enough different representations of love, like friendships and siblings. This does not deliver on showing the love of siblings i don't think 
because the focus is very much more on Laura Linney's love life and the, the whole Carl plot line. So yeah, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what the, the, the sort of the function of this part of the story is. Um, apart from, I guess it just being, it makes Laura Linney, it makes it really hard for her to put herself first. That's why she's been single for so long, but I don't know. It's a little bit bizarre. Yeah. I kind of feel that, the film is almost punishing Laura Linney for the relationship that the, and the love that she's got for her brother, who obviously isn't well because her character kind of gets no resolution really. And it's all a little bit sad and it just feels like, yeah, yeah let's just punish her because she's obviously put her brother's welfare ahead of herself in this mm. case. It's, it is a sad story. It's not got a happy ending. And I think, isn't it the second phone call that comes through in this scene and Carl, says to her oh shall we just let it ring out do you think it would actually help you answering and she decides to pick up um I just felt like this it just really left a bad taste in my mouth that he barely knows her I don't think he doesn't know her brother at all he doesn't know anything about his health to make that suggestion because Mm. it suits him because he wants to have sex is just really disrespectful. I found it. And yeah, it made sense that they don't end up together because he clearly cannot handle the fact that she's got, you know, caring responsibilities for her brother. Emma Thompson and Alan Rittman are getting ready for bed and Emma comments that that Maya is very pretty and tells her husband to be careful. And then this is the first of the the shots where Maya is in the bedroom taking her red dress off to show her red sexy underwear and she walks past the camera. We have a shot of Big Ben straight afterwards (laughs) as well. (laughs) As a reminder to the Americans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you have like Emma Thompson in kind of like frumpy, kind of loose, big baggy clothing, and then we had to go look, lads. This is what this is what he could have won. Mm. This is Maya. This is what's tempting him. And then Big Ben, which is it a Freudian subliminal symbol? Yeah, <laughs> Big Ben. You know? Exactly. Uh, Richard Curtis is Freudian in that he's married to Emma Freud. Oh, uh, so there you yeah. Go. So there you go. You see. Yeah, Laura Linney visits her brother in the mental institution and, yeah, he tries to hit her and the staff have to come in and stop it. And one of those was a, a guy who's been Hollyoaks, I remembered. So that was a, that was a fun little memory memory lane trip there. But, yeah, so that, that seems quite an awkward scene and kind of backs up where Laura Linney is. Because prior to this, all you see is her answering a mobile phone and everyone rolling their eyes when her mobile rings. They don't hold back on planting people of what like the whole story is like instantly we've talked about it so many times they've explained people's relationships to each other very quickly in such a crass way but they really hold off on saying who's calling Laura Linney and why she's always picking up and I don't know does that build suspense I'm not sure I'm not sure if it actually helps the story that much Mm us not knowing for such a long time who's calling her. It's the one strand where he's trying to do something a bit different and it's too different to the point that it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't think, I think like you said, there's not enough, there's not enough story in there to make it work and to make Mm. it a believable and storyline. So it just comes across as quite hollow. 
Yeah. I it think... feels like it's a different film. Isn't yeah, it does. Like it should have been a standalone feature, that bit. Mm. Yeah, 100%. Back in the office, Alan tells Maya that he's off Christmas shopping, but he'll be back at three. And she asks if he's going to get her something. And he looks a bit surprised. And then outside of work, he calls her up. And they ask her, you know, is she going to give him something? Which is not a great phone call to make. And she thought that she'd made it clear last night, when it comes to her, he can have everything. He offers to buy her some stationery, but she doesn't want something she needs. She needs something she wants. Uh, Her accent slips a bit in this scene. I think she's a Scandinavian actor. Is she? Yeah. this character is is yeah thinly thinly drawn mm-hmm. wishy-washy rubbish yeah. again it's, she's not fully formed she's uh, just providing a function to put alan rickman's character in a precarious situation temptation that he you know does give into to create to create the rift between you know him and emma thompson she's not a fully formed character which is such a shame because it's so much more endearing if mm if she was you know mm. and i'd had such enough of of him at this point that i've written i just want him to turn into hans gruber <laughs> <laughs> yeah give Please. me die hard yeah any day so yeah and then so he meets emma thompson and they go christmas shopping and we have the the kind of one of the famous scenes of the film where he's in the department store and he spots a, a necklace with a heart on it so 270 quid he's uh, gonna pay for this necklace in 2003 uh, and he said that he wants it gift wrapped, and then we have the Rowan Atkinson scene where he slowly gift wraps the the uh, yeah the, the necklace, and it becomes more ridiculous as it as it goes along. And apparently, uh, due to the time constraints, Alan Rickman was quite flustered anyway during this scene, so it wasn't a big stretch, <laughs> wasn't the acting because it was quite a tight turnaround. Yeah, I mean, what did you guys think to this this Rowan Atkinson scene? Again, this is supposed to be one of the memorable bits, isn't it? And one of the bits that's kind of held up the kind the light relief. Because actually, it's been a while for for a rom com. It's been a while since anyone's done anything that purports to be funny, mm. and so it, pro- it probably comes at a good time. But uh, I don't know. I, I so I, I'm just so bored of everything else that that even this is just getting on my tits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, I think you're right in the sense that this is the moment of some light relief and also lightening up a very in, a very intense, quite dark scene. He's buying a gift for someone else, not his wife, 270 quid. Um, and yeah, I enjoyed it. it. I feel like it is one of the most uh, like famous scenes. Like I'm sure I've seen clips of it replayed over the years. Um but Rowan Atkinson is just brilliant. You could probably mm. pop him in any scene with any kind of slightly comedic gesture of a scene and he'll just make it great. Mm. Um, I feel like there could have been more Rowan Atkinson. Like he could have been a recurring character. Like that is the department shop that probably everybody was buying their Christmas presents from. He could have been in a lot of different scenes and would have brought a f- breath of fresh air to this entire film but you know he's just in that bit and the airport bit yeah i yeah i like actually to me that's a better film is if you have something set in in that kind of place and all these different people going in and 
weirdly that seems more of an interesting film to me than than what we've got is uh, <laughs> yeah. people's christmas shopping i don't know what that film would be but i'd rather watch that than than this really if you're going to do a film <laughs> about different people's lives interchanging mm-hmm. i don't know but yeah i always like to see rowan atkinson chris marshall appears at his friend's flat and tells him that he's had to rent out his flat to pay for his ticket to america Martin freeman asks joanna page out Alan Rittman and Emma Thompson arrive home and she checks his pocket to find the box with the necklace in it and she looks really happy. She looks ecstatic, thinking it's for her. Colin Firth is at the Central London School of Language, learning Portuguese. Emma Thompson checks the presents under the tree and thinks she's found the one with the necklace in it. Uh, I I reckon this is going to be one of our favourite scenes in the movie next. Chris Marshall arrives in Wisconsin. (laughs) Fucking hell. Gets to the airport, gets in a taxi, asks to go to a bar. At the bar, he orders a, a, a Budweiser and a cute-looking American girl, played by uh, Ivana Milesevic. From, from Casino Royale. Oh, she... Right, yes. She's Le Chiffre's girlfriend. Oh, I've, I knew I recognised yeah, her. I knew I recognised her, but I couldn't place her. Thank you. So she approaches him. Oh, my God, are you from England? That is so cute when he orders the Budweiser. This is Stacey. She calls her friend over, Jeannie, played by Betty Draper herself, January Jones. Who I think was a model at this point. Yeah. I think this is like one of her very first acting gigs. Because she's in a boat that rocked as well. So she's a bit of a Richard Curtis regular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Was she in the American Pie well, she's in the, th- is it the third American Pie? The wedding, the American wedding? Was I think is it that around this time, I think. I'm going to look her up yeah. and double check because I didn't watch all of the, that one because I hated it. But then the third girl that comes in, and this is where, as an 18-year-old, I was very excited because it was Alicia Cuthbert, who I mm-hmm. absolutely loved at that point in time. Good old all-American Alicia Cuthbert, who is from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she was in American Pie 3, uh, The Wedding, just before this film. So it's a other screen credit of 2003. Sorry, Monica. I was just going to say, Alicia Cuthbert was also in The Girl Next Door, which I think was before this, right? Because that's I, I, I what think, really yeah. made her famous. I think it was 2002, but... I think it's after. I think it's 2004. I had it on DVD. I had, again, a film that hasn't aged particularly well. I think I had it on DVD. Launched a few careers, didn't it? Because her, mm-hmm. hers and Emil Hirsch and Paul Dano mm-hmm. is in that film Paul as Dano, well. Dano, yeah. 2004. And also that January Jones did the same year. She was also in Anger Management with Jack Nicholson and Adam yes. Sandler. <laughs> she, and like Alicia Cuthbert does in Girl Next Door, she plays a porn star in Anger Management. That's right. So, yeah, yeah bit of a, a January Jones deep dive there. Um, yeah, so a third girl shows up, played by Alicia Cuthbert, who just loves English guys. And they invite him back to their place. But we're so poor, we only have one bed and can't afford pajamas. So they all have to sleep naked. And then there's a fourth girl who'll be joining them. Who's the sexy one? Uh, and then we cut to a silhouette of Chris Marshall and the girls getting it on. With... Wherever You Will Go by The Calling playing, which is one of the worst songs of the noughties. A song I absolutely hate. I used to work in a clothes shop around that time called Best Jeans Wear in Bristol, and they used to play that album constantly. 
on my last day working there, I remember taking it out of the CD player and bashing the shit out of it with a uh, <laughs> some kind of screwdriver or something and then putting it back in the CD player and then leaving. Oh, amazing. It's Christmas Eve and Emma Thompson and the family are opening one Christmas present each before the big day. She opens up what she thinks is the necklace, only it isn't. It's a Joni Mitchell CD. Then we cut to Maya getting off her bed in sexy lingerie again and putting on the necklace. Emma Thompson stands in the bedroom looking dowdy, listening to Joni Mitchell and having a good old cry. If she's such a big Joni Mitchell fan, she'd already have that album, wouldn't she? She'd have bought yeah. it when it came out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, this scene, again, is held up as one of the good scenes with, with a good bit of acting. And, you know, she is doing well. Mm. But again, it's just, it just doesn't fit with the rest of the film. You know, in, in, in that it is good and makes some kind of dramatic sense. But it's, no. Yeah. She, I don't think any of the, I don't think any of the good stuff she does is in the script. I think that's all her. Yeah, yeah. She's obviously very talented and very good, and does a lot with what she's got because I think she brings a lot of pathos and a lot of emotion to to that mm-hmm. role and that film, and brings a lot out of it that, like you say, and yeah, it's because um, that that I think. I don't know if you'll get onto this when we get to legacy, but that feels like her character in that story arc feels like one of the things that has, has lasted all this time and still gets talked about. I don't know if you'd agree. Yeah, no, it is. Well, certainly like I'm a big fan, as you know, of Mark Kermode and he, he is an apologist for this film, but I think mainly because of her and because of the, the acting job she does in this film. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, she can't save it. No, no, no that's she right. She can't save the whole film. Sam tells Liam that Joanna's not noticed him yet, but it's okay because people in rom-coms only get together right at the very end. Sam feels bad because he's not asked his stepdad how his love life is going. And he says, that was a done deal long ago, unless Claudia Schiffer calls. Second mention. And if she does, he wants Sam out right away so he can have sex in every room in the house, including his. One of the worst lines in the film. Doesn't this scene start with Liam Neeson on the phone as well? I was thinking, oh, it's uh, it's weird to see Liam Neeson on the phone not threatening terrorists. (laughs) (laughs) I'll find you and I'll kill you. (laughs) Again, that would make this film a lot better. It would. Again, another, yeah, strand. <laughs> Just take some of the bits of Taken and put that in this. It's <laughs> only so at Christmas. So the title says Christmas Eve, but I actually thought it was already Christmas Eve because they were doing the present well, opening. But that's what I was thinking. Is that Why are they fucking opening presents on like three days before Christmas? Or whatever? <laughs> yeah. Completely lost track of when this is. Yeah. That's so weird. Again, the editing is yeah. uh, alter shit. Mm-hmm. Radio 1 which I think is Joe Wiley, is it, Rob, announcing the Christmas number one? It's it's a guy called Wes Butters who, for the briefest of periods, presented the chart show on Radio 1. And he came and went, uh, nobody remembers who he is, but, but he just happened to be presenting it when Love Actually came out. So he is immortalised as the kind of voice of the charts, even though... No one remembers him. Yeah, no one remembers him. Bill Nye's got Christmas number one and gets invited to a party at Elton John's house. The woman who hands him the phone. Oh, yeah. It's one of the classic kind of things things I hate in films when it's someone with a really small part trying to to steal the scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's so annoying. 
Because doesn't so she go, Bill Babe, found for you, or yeah, something. And, and then she's just pulling really stupid faces <laughs> while she stood next to him. So, yeah. It's yeah. his scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chewing gum, she tried chewing gum. She, yeah, she makes such a funny dog's dinner of that line. She's up there with the guy in Ghostbusters who shouts, "Yeah, Ghostbusters, all right!" When they're coming up. <laughs> Colin Firth goes to see his family. We've we've done this bit, Uncle Jamie. We hate you or whatever. But he gets a black cab to Gatwick from Central London. No, no, you don't, mate. Nobody, nobody. <laughs> I don't care how rich you are. You're not doing that. <laughs> Yeah, I thought he gets a taxi to the airport on Christmas Eve to go to France. But to Gatwick, which is like mm. 60 miles away. <laughs> <laughs> Chiwetel and Kira are watching uh, the TV on the sofa. The doorbell goes, she answers it, and it's Andrew Lincoln with a ghetto blaster playing a tape of carol singers singing silent night and he's got some cue cards like Bob Dylan in the subterranean homesick blues video. Mm-hmm. And the cards say, let me say, without hope or agenda, just because it's Christmas, and at Christmas you tell the truth, to me you are perfect. Kira looks lost for words. The cards wish her a Merry Christmas, and she whispers Merry Christmas. He gives a thumbs up and leaves, and then she runs after him, grabs him, and then kisses him, and then he says, enough is enough now. She looks lost for words because Richard Curtis couldn't be asked to write any for her. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah, again, Kira Knightley just been under undersold mm. here. I found this bit really weird because when it started, my immediate thought was, it's your best mate's wife. What are you doing? It's your best mate's wife. She's figured it out. You know she knows. Now you just really need to try and do damage control and move on because it's not going to happen. She's married to your best mate. I just couldn't believe. I was like, I cannot buy this is being cute or romantic because mm. it just, I'm sure most people will have the school of thought of knowing that that is inappropriate. You can do it anyway, I guess, but it's just bizarre because it was dressed up to look really cute. And then she actually kissed him as well. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. Exactly. Well, I've got, yeah, I've got two two points to make. I guess one is a question: Do we think that the kiss is like her trying it out, or is she just giving him a bit of something? It feels very strange as the fact she kind of grabs him by the like lapels of his jacket and then brings him in, kisses him, and then runs off. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, is it meant to be romantic? Is it just sort of like a is a taster? It's meaningless. I did, I, I love. There's another bit of um, dialogue uh, reviewing the film where he he ends that scene by saying to himself enough now enough yeah he, yes yes let's have, that should be the end now let's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. get on I with was, it i was just thinking could you imagine andrew lincoln sat at his flat writing them cards out you, you'd give up wouldn't you you'd, you'd, you'd start writing them out and go this is fucking stupid why am i doing this you know what i mean you wouldn't get to the end of writing all these cards out and they go this is a good idea Hugh Grant's given a sample of Christmas cards and amongst them is one from Martin McCutcheon. She apologises for what happened with the president and puts at the end, if you can't say it at Christmas, when can you say it? I'm actually yours. Just putting uh, actually in for no good reason because the film is called Love Actually. Rubbish. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You and his people go to the dodgy end of Wandsworth and start knocking on doors and one of them's Maya who just happens to live next door to Martin McCutcheon. 
yeah, the dodgy street where the combined cost of the houses on those streets is probably something like two hundred and fifty million pounds or something. Yes, and then we have the one bit that I laughed out loud at, and uh, we'll see if it's the same bit you laughed out, Monica, when they go to Martin's house and her family are all there, ready to go to the concert, and she comes down down the stairs going, "Where the fuck is my fucking coat?" Yep, that was the bit. That, that was, was the bit. bit. Where the fuck is my fucking coat? Yeah, yeah the one bit I laughed <laughs> at was that. Yeah, and then she spots that Hugh Grant's here, introduces him to uh, him to her family. They're going to a school concert. School concert on Christmas Eve. Yeah. And and her dad calls her plumpy as well. Fucking mm. piss off, Curtis. <laughs> yeah, and then um, in the car, so you, it, Hugh gives them a lift to the concert and it's just her and, well, it's him, her, and this child dressed as an octopus. But she again apologises for what's happened with the president Outside the school, he says he'd better not come in because he doesn't want some sleazy politician stealing the kids' thunder, which is the opposite of what a politician would do nowadays, isn't it? And he's calling himself sleazy. Yeah. yeah. He's calling himself sleazy. <laughs> yeah. They don't have self-awareness, usually, these politicians. <laughs> Colin Firth arrives in Marseille to find Aurelia. Martin finds a spot backstage where she and Hugh can watch the concert. They bump into Emma Thompson with her kids. She gives them a hug and seems upset. Young Joanna sings All I Want for Christmas is You with Sam on drums. And uh, somehow he's managed to get a place in the school band two weeks prior to the concert without ever playing drums before. The song ends, the audience goes wild, the curtain is pulled back to reveal a Merry Christmas sign, and Hugh Grant and Martin McCutcheon are snogging each other's faces off. They all look shocked, and so does the audience. And she asks, what do we do now? And he just says, let's smile and wave at all the people. I thought it could be worse. They could have been having sex. (laughs) That would have been better. (laughs) It would have been better. I put, I hate the teachers and I hate the dancing kids. Oh, yeah. Awful. Yeah, those kids just show, show up out of nowhere, don't they? And then don't really dance much, but are dressed in sort of like uh, the Warriors. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't think the Warriors. But yeah, you're right. It's the Warriors. <laughs> yeah. And then at the school concert, uh, Emma Thompson asked her husband if, if he was in her position what would you do if your husband bought a gold necklace at Christmas and gave it to somebody else would you wait around to find out if it's just a necklace or if it's sex and a necklace or if it's a necklace and love Alan Rippman looks pained and she carries on would you stay always knowing that your life is just a little bit worse or would you cut and run and he says I've been a classic fool and uh, she says well you've may also made a fool out of me and starts to cry but managed to pull it back together when her kids turn up Liam Neeson says, what a great show to Sam, but he's downhearted because the plan didn't work. But don't worry, it's not over till it's over. So they decide to go to the airport to tell Joanna that he loves her. And that's when we bump into a woman who's played by Claudia Schiffer, ladies and gentlemen. Only she's not playing Claudia Schiffer. She's playing a woman called Carol, who's also a mum at the school. And they share a moment before rushing off to the airport. Colin Firth shows up at Aurelia's house, and we have more fat jokes about Aurelia's sister. Back at the airport, they won't let Sam through to say goodbye to Joanna. Rowan Atkinson shows up, creates a bit of a diversion, so Sam runs through. Joanna's getting ready to board the plane, but in the background on TV screens is Bill Nye stripping off performing his song, which distracts the the staff. 
Sam runs through to speak to Joanna. Airport security throw him out, and it turns out that Joanna did know his name after all. In a departure lounge, she turns up, gives Sam a kiss on the cheek, and then runs off. Liam Neeson and Sam walk off triumphantly and give each other a hug. And she's wearing a tea cosy, Joanna, as well, isn't she, on her head? Yeah. And um, and also, that this scene had a load of stuff with him doing acrobatics, the kids, and they, they took it all out. Like he'd learned oh. a load of... The, the characters are supposed to have learned a load of gymnastics. He's supposed to be like jumping and hurdling over all these things at the airport, and they they've luckily took it all out. Yeah, Colin Firth gets to the carol where Aurelia works, and he professes his love for her in Portuguese. She can speak English now and accepts. The whole town is there watching this at the restaurant, and uh, everyone cheers, and they have an awkward kiss. Again, no chemistry here between Colin Firth and the lady playing Aurelia. The sister then gives Colin a kiss on the lips, and so does her dad, because it's continental. One month later, back at the airport, Bill Nye shows up with his new girlfriend, Kira and Chiwetel and Andrew Lincoln meet Colin Firth and Aurelia at the airport. Even though it's January, everyone is dressed like it's summer. It's also overlit, like they've all died and gone up to heaven alan ripman meets his family it's a bit uncomfortable between him and emma thompson as he kisses her on the cheek joanna also arrives back in london to meet sam who's with liam neeson and claudia schiffer who's not playing claudia schiffer martin and Fre- martin freeman and joanna page are engaged and bump into the guy from the film set and chris marshall returns with two american girls played by shannon elizabeth and denise richards who gives his mate a big old kiss and we then have a montage of people hugging and kissing to god only knows by the beach boys the end all right thank god i never have to watch this again Let's get on to verdicts, Rob. I think I know how you feel, but anything you want to cap it off with? The main thing I want to highlight, that, like, how I would sum it up, is that it's good actors working hard to service an awful and, and quite cynical script. You know, like cynical in so many ways in terms of pulling heartstrings. And I, I, I'm not actually averse to that as an idea. You look at something like It's a Wonderful Life or something, like even like Schmaltz as an idea is... is and, absolutely fine but it, it this has got such a cynical tinge to it and i yeah it it didn't make me as angry as last time i watched it because i'm i'm, I'm, I'm expecting certain things that are going to piss me off but uh yeah it's I, I still hate it for all the same reasons i i hated it the last time i saw it and um yeah rubbish monica what did you think after watching it again um I just feel like there's so much better use of time. Um, two hours and 15 minutes. It's just so long. I mean, normally December is such a busy time and you can only watch a finite amount of films during that month. Why watch this one? Like mm. genuinely, there's so many better ones. And I think there's a couple, there's a couple that I want to mention, which I feel like if you want a Christmas rom-com, this is not the one to go to. Like there was two new ones that Prime made last year. Your Christmas or Mine with Asa Butterfield. I thought that was great. Mm, I like and that. there was an American one called Something from Tiffany's, which was also pretty good. Um, and there's one that's on my list this year. I can't remember what it was called, but it's like one of the first queer Christmas rom-coms. Christian Stewart's in it. It came out a couple of years ago. Oh, yes, I, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. so I just feel like if you're going to watch a Christmas rom-com, don't watch this one. 
Yeah, I think for me, the issue is that you don't really have any sort of villains in the piece. You know, people, you, you know, you're meant to think that Andrew Lincoln is is a good guy, and I don't think he is. I'm meant to sort of root for him in a way, and I don't think that that works. I would rather you, you go down like a darker route with that character, but then it wouldn't be a Christmas film. Again, the, the Maya character isn't really the sort of baddie of the piece. She's just someone, there's no consequences to anyone that, that, that does anything either you know so she kind of chases this affair but it all kind of works out in the end you know alan alan rittman and emma thompson are sort of okay they're still together and there's no real sort of comeuppance for the maya character i don't know whether there should be but she obviously is sort of trying to like she knows he's married and trying to cause these issues so yeah for me it it could be a lot better written and take some more darker interesting turns and in the end it's just too saccharine and sugary sweet without delivering on much of anything else yeah agreed so the legacy of this film rob the legacy is that richard curtis's director goes on to make lots more of the same uh followed by the boat that rocks which we say you know just yeah it didn't really work to work as a directorial debut and he did yeah i think all the kind of holiday ensemble rom-coms that kind of follow this including but not exclusively new year's eve valentine's day mother's day leap year all of these things love actually birthed this kind of stuff richard curtis's career as a director as i said was was not much cop after this working title the guys that produced this continue to kind of dominate the british movie landscape frost nixon theory of everything uh, atonement but also cats <laughs> and then um I think between this and Girls Aloud, they've ruined the Pointer Sisters' jump, which is a song <laughs> I, <laughs> I quite, I, I hitherto quite liked. And also, they've ruined, uh, or they've contributed to the ubiquity of All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey, which was quite a nice kind of Phil Spector revival Christmas song before before this, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's always going to be shown at Christmas. Um, the the Andrew Lincoln scene has been parodied over and over, most noticeably by Boris Johnson, which is horrible. Mm. But yeah, I don't think its legacy is good. I think people have people who liked it have reappraised it. People who didn't like it have have kind of stayed much the same. Mm. Um, I think I I don't hate it quite as much as Lesbian Vampire Killers. I don't think Guy, um, but probably as much if not more than nuns on the run so for me it's going down the bottom of our table what do you reckon yeah i think i think you're right i think we could put it in after um have lesbian vampire killers and then if you want love actually there and then we'll go nuns on the run because at, at least nuns on the run had you know the briefest of good moments maybe i don't know maybe i'm being too kind on nuns on the so run 10th te- yeah. out of 11 yeah i kind of feel the same Mm. I was ready to get all really, really angry about it, but actually, in the end, it's just a... <sighs> it's an exhale of a film. Yeah. It's like, you're disappointed. You're not angry. You're not passionately angry. It's just, oh, what a shame. We are going to finish our quiz for the for the series, Guy, and you are, for the first time ever, took the lead in episode 10... You're 22, 21 ahead. Monica has questions for us on Richard Curtis for you and Vicar of Dibley for me. Let's see who wins this series. Yeah. 
Take it away, Monica. Right, Richard Curtis. Okay, first question. In which city was Richard Curtis born? No, somewhere in New Zealand, wasn't it? Auckland? You're very close. You're so close. It's Wellington. Oh, that's fine. First question. Roger Lloyd Pack appeared in The Vicar of Dibley and which other classic sitcom? Only Fools and Horses. Yeah, that was right. Well done. What was the name of the Radio 3 programme Curtis wrote with Rowan Atkinson in the late 70s? Uh, the Atkinson people, was yeah. it? Yeah, you got it. Well done. Where in Britain's best sitcoms did the show come? It's three, isn't it? We mentioned it before, it was third. Yep, that's right. To whom did Richard Curtis lose his best original screenplay nomination at the 67th Academy Awards? Was it Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery? It was Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Which role did Dawn French originally want to play in this show? Ooh. Alice. Yeah, it was Alice. <laughs> okay, number four for Guy. Are you ready? Who announced accidentally at Cheltenham Literature Festival that Curtis had married his long-term partner, Emma Freud, in 2023? <sighs> I don't know. Hugh Grant. It's Richard E. Grant. Oh! The Vicar of Dibley theme can be heard in which other Richard Curtis created TV show? Sounds a bit like Mr. Bean. Is it Mr. Bean? Yeah, it's Mr. Bean. Okay, last question for Guy. In which year did Curtis write an episode of Casualty? Oh, God knows. Um, 1987. Ooh, you're way off. It was 2007. Ah. Okay, last question for Rob. Kylie Minogue appeared in which episode of The Vicar of Dibley? Is it the second Christmas special? I don't know what it's called. It was Community Spirit. No, it was the first. It's it not, was the first season. Yeah, I don't think first. it's a Christmas special. Well, Guy, the scores there were 4-2 to me, which means I've just snuck past you, making the final series scores. Rob, 25. Guy, 24. So close. I was so close. But yeah, so far. We'll start again in series two next year. Monica, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. Oh, it's been great. Thank you for yet yeah, being our Christmas guest. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug or tell people about? Uh, yeah, I'm writing a show at the moment. It's my first play. It's called Long Strong Hair. And it's about hair and your body hair and consent around doing what you want with your own body hair and head hair based on like social pressures, family pressure, religious pressures. Um, it's a fun show. It's got spoken word, movement, lots of music. Um, as well as storytelling and projection. Um, I also voice a lot of audiobooks as well. So if you're an audiobook fan, just search my name, Monica Sagar, on Audible, and they'll all come up. Um, and I also have a YouTube channel. Um, it's an ASMR and relaxation channel called Groovy Sleep Sounds. So if you're having trouble chilling, have a look on there. Excellent. And I, I have seen a preview of Long Strong Hair and really enjoyed it. So can't wait to see. Oh, um, thank what, you. Yeah, can't wait to see what you do with it yeah, as well. well. I'm applying for a tour next year and 
Arts Council funding to hopefully tour it next year. Um, and one of the venues I have been approaching is Lawrence Batley in Huddersfield. So oh, fingers crossed. I used to work there. <laughs> Did you? Oh, it's a great theatre. For a little yeah. bit. <laughs> it's lovely. Yeah, lovely theatre. And yeah, can't wait to hopefully see it there next year. That's the end of Series 1, Guy. Yeah. It's been great. Loved it. Absolutely. Every second of it, it's been great. And uh, we've got more to do in Series 2 next year, haven't we? We've already got some great guests lined up, and there'll be a fair few episodes of Guy and I just chatting shit. So uh, I hope you've all enjoyed Series 1, and we'll see you again in 2024 for Series 2. Cheers, Cheers, Rob. guys. Bye. Thank you. See ya. Thanks for listening to Series 1 of BritCon Goes to the Movies with Guy Walker and Rob Heath. Thanks to Mark Phillips for the podcast artwork. And thanks also to our Series 1 guests, Steve Dunn, Tom Slinsky, Daisy Edwards and Monica Sagar. You can get in touch with us by emailing BritConGoes at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram or Twitter as at BritConGoes. And don't forget to check out the BritCon Goes to the Movies playlist on Spotify. Please like, subscribe and review so that others can find the podcast. And we'll be back with Series 2 in the summer. But until then, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.